Welcome to our first remote podcast as we adapt to life in a pandemic. The role of the church in general, and scripture in particular, is to help us see God in the events of our lives. As the Lord would have it, we'll be working through a passage that perfectly positions us as Christ followers in a difficult time. The heart of the Kingdom Message series connects Jesus's Sermon on the Mount with the heart of the one who preached it. And this is Jesus's best-known teaching. And though arguably the least understood and certainly the least practiced, it's the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus uttered, a description of life in the kingdom of God, and an explanation of what he expects from his followers. Now, one of the strangest aspects of the COVID-19 outbreak is how it has changed the way we experience the everyday. Right now, it seems nobody can dine out or go to the store or work out at the gym without wondering about that person coughing nearby. In the coming weeks, nobody will enjoy the thrilling surge of an unlikely underdog in the NCAA tournament. No one will go to that concert they've been looking forward to or take the cruise they'd planned for months. This novel coronavirus is separating grandparents from grandchildren. The elderly and infirm in care facilities won't be visited by those closest to them. Schools are closing. Programs are postponed. Parties are canceled. And as China's experience shows us, the worst of the virus will eventually pass, but uh, we're in, uh, hopefully, a once-in-a-lifetime moment of emptying. Instead of trying to patch together something of our normal existence or distract ourselves from the present reality, we need to sit with this. May we be ready to hear God in ways we may have never heard him before. Our feelings of helplessness and confusion have stripped us down to the core reality of our lives, our health, the people that mean most to us. Now we're ready to live into Christ's words and experience blessedness according to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus begins by revealing that this emptying is the perfect place for us to hold space and be filled with him. Jesus reveals that this begins by embracing the heart of kingdom character. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now Jesus' purpose in going up a mountainside to teach was to withdraw from the great crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan who'd been following him. He'd spent the early months of his public ministry wandering throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people. As a result, his fame spread and people came in large numbers, bringing their sick to be healed. So he had to escape, not just to secure for himself the opportunity to be quiet and to pray, but also to give more concentrated instruction to his disciples. Jesus' teaching, it came in the first part 
uh, of his sermon in the form of beatitudes, a Latin term for blessedness. Each expression describes a current state of blessedness or well-being, followed by a promise of future blessing. And the first four Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, define the space the rest of Jesus' sermon will inhabit. Character begins with a position, a posture. Just as humility is the gateway to all of the virtues, this position of self-emptying is essential for growing in Christ-like character. Virtues, they aren't qualities to pursue. They're not subjects to master, not goals to reach. The virtues reflected in Christ's character are qualities to receive. We cannot work them in or work them out. The best we can do, the most we can do, is to hold space for the Spirit to work. In Matthew 5.3, we see the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, a state of dependence on God, holds space for God. Just as Jesus said, the Son can do nothing by himself, we are poor in spirit when we know we cannot do anything worth doing or be anything worth being on our own. It's a state of dependence on God. When we are poor in spirit, we hold space for God that is intimate and free, a prayer conversation, intimate moments, just for us, just with us. The poor in spirit are fortunate because God is present with them. They experience life in the kingdom of heaven while living on earth. In verse 4, we see the next beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning, a state of godly sorrow, holds space to receive comfort. Godly sorrow laments personal sin. It holds space for personal responsibility, for offending God or hurting others. Those who mourn are fortunate because godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to Christ-like character. Godly sorrow is from the heart. Father, forgive me. Worldly sorrow focuses on unfair treatment on the part of others. Worldly sorrow leads to indignant anger. You have grieved me. The fruit of worldly sorrow is an eagerness to get even or to be vindicated. The fruit of godly sorrow is peace with God and the experience of community. Mourning creates the space for filling. In verse 5, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Meekness, power under control, holds space for God's control. Meekness isn't self-control, but submitting to the control of the Holy Spirit. Meekness isn't self-direction, but learning to follow directions. Meekness acknowledges limits. It doesn't bluster or filibuster. A meek person is flexible, but solidly anchor. Still waters that run deep. Meekness is subversive power. It's not what you expect power. It's not powerful action, but powerful inaction. Meekness holds space for the power of God, the greatness of God, to flow through a person without drawing attention to oneself. The meek don't block the view. The land is always inherited. It's never taken. It's not ours to take, but God's to give. 
And in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. <clears throat> hunger and thirst hold space for filling. The joy of sated hunger and slaked thirst requires being hungry and thirsty. Hunger and thirst for righteousness is the prerequisite for the satisfaction of being filled with God's righteousness, with the way of the kingdom of God. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness move us in the direction of filling. We get a taste of God's righteousness and want more. We develop an appetite that engages our heart, mind, and will. Hunger and thirst for righteousness is a journey, not an arrival. It's a desire that directs us, moves us in the right way, the way of Jesus. There must be a pruning process before a filling process. And so Jesus, the teacher, here he is seeking not just to inform our intellect, but he wants to form our lives. And he isn't content with simply depositing new ideas into our minds. He's after nothing less than our wants, our loves, our longings. And in this moment of emptying we're experiencing, our world turned upside down by a pandemic and the destabilizing of life as we knew it, the wrong reaction is to try to fill ourselves up again with things that assured us before. We need to sit with this. We need to remain in this moment. We feel helpless and frustrated and want the infection rates to slow down and the stock market to, to bounce back. But God calls us in this moment to fill us with himself. By receiving and not grasping, we are poor in spirit and in a posture to receive the kingdom of heaven, the joy, peace, and security of Christ's presence. By lamenting and not patching our hearts with distractions and quick fixes, we're in a posture to receive God's comfort, the only real and lasting contentment. The COVID-19 pandemic is a terrible thing. The COVID-19 pandemic is a wonderful thing because God has our attention and he can form Christ-like character in us. While the first four Beatitudes put us in a posture to receive from God, to be guided and empowered by God, the last four are calls to action. Kingdom influence permeating and illuminating the world grows out of kingdom character. Now is the time for us, the people of God, not to go fetal with fear, but to impact the world with kingdom influence. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, we see the fifth beatitude and begin to see the heart of kingdom influence. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. While the first four beatitudes reflected a condition, poor in spirit, mournful, meek, and unsatisfied, this beatitude calls for action. With the first four, action was secondary, but with mercy, it's primary. Feeling sorries for others without helping them is worse than no feeling at all. Mercy without action is pity, and no one wants our pity. No one wants us to feel sorry for them, especially if we're not going to do anything about it. God didn't just pity us poor humans and our sinful plight. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, But because of his great love for us, God, 
who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now we model merciful acts of generosity, compassion, forgiveness, and grace, and God's great mercy to bring healing and peace in our broken world. Mercy passes through us to others. Those shown mercy, channel mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Now, pure in heart is a condition that underlies the other Beatitudes. A pure heart is an undivided heart, single-minded devotion to God that stems from purity within. One cannot be poor in spirit without a pure heart. One cannot mourn over the brokenness of this world without a pure heart. One cannot be meek or hunger and thirst for righteousness or show mercy or be a peacemaker or withstand persecution without a pure heart. There's an interaction between seeing and being. The condition of our hearts affects the way we see, and the way we see affects the condition of our heart. A pure heart sees God, and a person who sees God has a pure heart. A pure heart is the promise of the new covenant, the indwelling spirit of God. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, God through Ezekiel says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, peace doesn't come from the outside in. It begins when the God space is filled on the inside, that God-shaped vacuum philosopher Blaise Pascal identified. The Beatitudes are about holding that space and asking God to fill it. Jesus is the peacemaker. Jesus is the bridge builder. Jesus carried sin and pain to bring forgiveness and relief. Jesus does the work inside to make life work on the outside. We become children of God who bear the family resemblance in the way we live. We become peacemakers in the pattern of our Savior. Blessed ones are specifically equipped for peacemaking. Think of it. The poor in spirit promote neither position nor pride. Those who mourn choose to enter and relieve the suffering of others. The meek position their power to bring order, not disorder. Those hungering and thirsting for righteousness align their hearts with God's. And the merciful seek to be the antidote to what the world does to people. The pure in heart see God in difficult times. They don't see themselves. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And the final beatitude found in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were, who were here before you. Now, it's no accident that Jesus moves from peacemaking to persecution. One might expect that humble, peaceable people would be highly valued by their fellow human beings. 
but such is not always the case. When we risk in response to Christ's love, the potential for suffering is there. In fact, peacemaking, as modeled by Christ, includes suffering. The suffering connected to, absorb it, to absorbing hatred, uh, it's connected to absorbing hatred, it's connected to returning a blessing for a curse. And so the question for us is whether we choose to disappear into the chaos of our world keep our noses clean and protect ourselves or bring salt and light, people permeating the darkness of this world with God's grace. Jesus uses two images to reveal the impact on our world we're called to have. Let us reimagine our world uh, in the world as God's agents of redemption. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of influence. Look at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When Jesus describes disciples as salt and light, he invites us into his work. Both salt and light are images for influence and impact. Salt flavors and preserves while light illuminates and chases out darkness. Rural communities like the one Jesus addresses here knew well how blinding darkness can be. The glow of a city in the distance uh, can give those traveling in the pitch black of night a sense of direction and bearing. But without kingdom character, our impact is diminished. We become unsalty salt, more like road dust, dim bulbs, a good for nothing other than maybe preserving ourselves. Christians salt the world by showing mercy, by living purely, making peace, and by absorbing persecution. And Christians illuminate the world as they work for the peace, security, justice, and prosperity of their city and their neighbors, loving them in word and in deed. This is the only kind of cultural engagement that will not corrupt us and conform us to the world's pattern of life. Followers of Jesus are summoned to the mission of God in this world. The kingdom of God is a secret kingdom populated by those who submit to Jesus the King. However, it's not built in secret. From the privacy of our interior world, we share with the Holy Spirit. We publicly represent the kingdom of God by sharing God's love with everyone. So in this moment of social distancing, may we draw closer to our Lord. May our response to this crisis reveal confidence in our God. May we respond in love to the needs of others. May we experience together true community in Jesus Christ. And may we live as the people of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, and heal the brokenness in this world in the name of God. 